This is the Darcy Drill Podcast, episode 27. Today, my guest is Eva Chipiuk. We're going to be talking about her cross-examination of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at the Public Order Emergencies Commission. Eva Chipiak, welcome to the Darcy Drill podcast. How are things? Thank you um, very well, and thanks for having me. Yeah, well, this is a this is a real honor for me. I definitely enjoyed your conversation with Justin Trudeau. Um, but it's funny because we most of my guests I know through some of my political involvement and other libertarian advocacy things I've done. Uh, but you, uh, I met through my wife. You guys went to, you guys did yoga together in Thailand or something crazy like that. Yeah, I have a, another life, uh, believe it or not. And uh, this is my third time back to law because I um, quit law famously at 33 and I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm just going to travel the world and be a yoga teacher and then twice back to the profession of law and very happy to be doing it right now. Yeah. Well, my wife's story is very similar. She worked in corporate Calgary uh, in HR for, I don't know, a decade and said enough is enough. I'm going to become a yoga teacher. Uh, so are you, but, so are you still practicing yoga? Are you still teaching yoga? I practice when I can. Um, it was impossible to do in Ottawa. I, um, so I took up swimming, actually, while I was in Ottawa. Again, I haven't done that in a while. Um, but where I can, of course, I practice. Okay. Yeah. And, and is Edmonton still home for you? Yes, it is at the moment, um, 100%. And I live just next door to the legislature. I have a view of the ledge grounds every day. Oh, okay. Well, so. Sorry to sorry to hear you have to look at that every day, but <laughs> I'm holding them accountable, watching through my window. Yeah. So let's, you know, before we get into the inquiry into the Emergencies Act, and I'm hope I hope I'm calling it by the appropriate name. Um, I mean, let's let's go back a little further and talk about the. The pandemic itself. I mean, when COVID hit, Canadian, you know, for for myself, I was I was in a place where, you know, I had some concerns about this thing when it first began. Um, you know, there's people in my family that have, you know, different uh, recurring pneumonia type things, and we we didn't know what COVID was in March of 2020, and I had you know, I think legitimate concerns. Um, but then when the government started imposing these lockdowns and mandates, it by the time they did that, it was very clear that this was not the major threat that we thought it was. It, can you tell us a bit about your experience, you know, at that time? Yeah, funny you ask. I didn't mention the second time I wasn't practicing law. I just I had the brilliant idea of opening a yoga studio and a healthy food cafe on Jasper Avenue in Edmonton. So it's a busy street in Edmonton and less than two years into owning a very difficult to maintain small business 
in Edmonton, the government shut me down. So I you probably know that like fitness facilities were the worst hit, always the first ones um, locked, closed, and the last ones to reopen. And to the left of me was a liquor store, to the right of me was a bar, and they were open. And I'm like, hmm, I'm having a hard time understanding how this is about health uh, when a yoga studio and a healthy food cafe you know, we had, well, we could have stayed open at the cafe, but uh, we were just so new and it was just to, to turn it into takeout. You can't, like when you're a small business, anybody that's done this, you can't just change your whole business plan overnight. Like it's just me doing everything. And, um, you know, bigger businesses have HR departments and accountants and a PR department and everything that they could do to make a change. I was just in the infancy and anything we tried. And one thing that really irked me too, is we, you know, with the yoga studio, we did online classes because that was our only option. We couldn't have anybody in, in the studio and we still have rent to maintain and all our other financial commitments. And the city of Edmonton was doing free virtual online classes, which I was subsidizing as a taxpayer and a business owner. And they're competing with my business during a global pandemic and uh, I'm being shut down. And I'm like, you know, and I, I understand uh, there were three levels of government that were affecting my business. So it, was, it wasn't the city. I know that um, that shut me down per se, but they did impose other rules. They're the first, there were the ones that imposed the VAX mandate. And we saw immediately a decline in students the next day. Uh, it was the province, of course, that shut us down. But the feds definitely didn't help with their messaging and with their terrible financial um compensation, which wasn't compensation, it was further loans. So it was just one thing after the other. And uh, it was hard for me to swallow. So I, I had an opportunity to get involved um, and sue the government because of this stuff. And I was like, let me in. I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you. Uh Telling that story, I I actually knew about the what happened to your yoga stu studio. I didn't want to bring it up unless unless you did because um, it's, it can be a very personal thing when a business is forced to close like that. Um, I think lots of people were very negatively affected. Obviously, financially, as obviously we all are, but mentally too because of it, you know. And uh, I don't I peep. Nobody's talking about it at all those implications to people's lives and their mental health because of what they went through oh without a doubt i've uh, i remember looking into some of the statistics on suicide and and it looks like they've actually changed the the parameters for the statistics that they keep on suicide numbers in the province um so it's hard to it's hard to get a very realistic number but it's still it's still frightening um yeah but i guess you know with everything everybody went through and it's not hard to understand the motives of you know what the what we call the freedom convoy of that that legendary canadian protest right 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, if you just drill it down to what it was about, it was end mandates. Mm -hmm. Very simple um, uh, goal. And we were like just citizens were shut down for two years. And I don't mean just physically, but there was no dialogue. And again, owning a business, I would have expected my elected officials to get on Zoom calls and talk to their constituents and say, look, we're all here like at home. So what else are they going to do? Like, what did they do when they shut everything down? Were they on Netflix watching TV all day? Like there should have been an insane amount of dialogue saying, this is what's happening. This is what we're doing. Being on top of it, informing citizens, informing business owners what's going on. And they just shut down physically and they shut down any dialogue. And, you know, how much of that can any one citizen take? Yeah. And that's really, I think, what sparked the Freedom Convoy and why there was so much um uh you know, support for it. There was just people were like, nobody knows what's going on anymore. Yeah. Well, that that's a very interesting point that I actually haven't thought about. Um, I imagine that these politicians were under an immense amount of pressure to, you know, support the lockdowns for one thing. Um, but at the same time, yeah, what were they doing? And, and, I, I guess it's almost easy to understand that if they had any conflicting feelings about it, it would have been easy for them to hide and watch Netflix and not do anything and not communicate to their constituents, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's certainly what it seemed like they did. Although I did hear one uh, when uh, Todd Lowen was running for the UCP leadership, he was asked, like um you stood out against you know the mandates or whatever mm. it was it's like when did there was a question to pose to him and I, i'm gonna get it wrong but it was about when did you find out about the mandates i think it was in the vax mandate and he said on facebook live like everyone else wow and i was blown away because like going back to what we were just saying they weren't even in the in the room talking about it or on zoom talking about it like it seemed like it was just a very small group of people that made some decisions and that was that yeah nobody's talked about it ever since yeah crazy um so yeah if we look at the if if we look at the freedom convoy the freedom convoy was one of the few uh you know positive things to come out of this lockdown i think it showed you know canadians uh backbone um more so than any any other event i can think of in my lifetime um where we generally have a reputation for being a passive and yeah friendly and apologizing place um and the one thing that really stood out for me about the the convoy was m- most now, I want to get this right. Most protests look the same to me. Like if I see an anti-abortion protest or if I see a pro-abortion protest, if I'm driving past it, both those things look the same to me. The Freedom Convoy looked completely unique. 
you know, when they were in Ottawa, it was it was a completely unique event. More looked more like a festival, a music festival than a protest. Uh, so, it to me, there you know, there'll always be like a, a nostalgic feeling around it. But were were you in Ottawa at that time? Like, were you there when the protest was happening? Yeah. So um, we got a call um, uh, that some of the protesters were looking for legal representation. So I got in there February 2nd, I believe it was, and then stayed until, you know, the bitter end, basically. Uh, And I was there. I saw it uh, for my own eyes. And you 100% have described it very well. And that's why sometimes it is hard to use the word protest and and, um, just because it was... And when I say unprecedented, I, and they like to use that in the inquiry a lot, um, unprecedented, great. And so is COVID and we're dealing with it. Like mm-hmm. just because something is unique or different doesn't mean uh, like you don't, oh, oh my God, I don't know what to do. Like there's a lot of like, that's why you're in government. That's why we have policing. So you deal with this unique and unprecedented events. But um, yeah, calling it a, a a festival or an event or even like a strike because that's really what it started out to be too against the vaccine mandates with truckers but all what it was is like it didn't really matter what the name was it was the support of Canadians that was important and people just felt for the first time that there was hope that for the first time they were going to be heard because like I was saying earlier, it was just everyone just shut down. The, there was no dialogue from anyone about anything. And then if you do say something, then you're a bigot or you're a racist or you're an uh, anti-vaxxer or deny, sci- science denier. And it was just so completely absurd that you can't relationships and families and communities were broken because all of a sudden we can't even talk to one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that was what, you know, it didn't matter what name you gave what happened in Ottawa. It was just people coming together and supporting each other and talking to each other for the first time in a long time. Oh, for sure. It's hilarious when they try and use uh, slurs like racist or bigot against the truckers when, I I don't know, I would say 50% of truckers are new Canadian immigrants, people of color, uh, right? So it, it it is hilarious that they try and throw those type of slanderous things at this to to discredit yeah. it, right? To discredit well, what it was actually about. And, and you're, you're creating a problem. Like, and that's actually one thing I'm just jumping right ahead is he says, did say, and this is where it's so sad where everything went. CISA said the more you push people like that, the more they're going to have these extremist ideas. Mm-hmm. Canadians are not violent, crazy extremists. Like we are quite, like you said earlier, very passive and very apathetic. I use a lot. Um, and we're certainly not, you know, bigots and racists. You know, you would see that daily on the street more. It's like they're creating a problem. They're looking for a problem. They're pushing it to that extent. And it's not at all what Canadians are about. And that's what was on full display for the world for three weeks is a party. It wasn't violence. It wasn't, um, uh, you know, bigotry. It was a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, it's funny too. So, w- 
while you were there, I mean, one thing that I found interesting was that, you know, none, and I talked to Andrew Lawton about this, not not anybody from Justin Trudeau's administration reached out to the anybody that was a you know one of these makeshift organizers of of the event right like there was no like we talked about how there was no dialogue with politicians and their constituents there was not there was no dialogue between the government and the protesters at all no, not at all. And even one step further, and that's what I was kind of talking about earlier, is they painted them as these terrorists and racists before they even got there. And we had evidence of that at the inquiries. There was an email already before any protesters got there, and they were trying to compare it to January 6th and what to do. Um so they had a narrative ready to go about these people. So if you're going to paint them as terrible people, why would you go and engage with them? So they started on the, you know, they started 10 steps backwards or probably a hundred given, you know, really what that was. It was just so far-fetched that they, you know, how do you reconcile that later? And uh, no, there was not, like I said, not any attempt, but quite the opposite, discredit and, and, and call these people names is is the tactic that was taken by the federal government. Yeah, yeah, uh, very, very, very disappointing. So then, here's what happened: the federal government invokes the Emergencies Act. I, I don't know where to go from from there. Like, were you on the ground when the when they started uh, breaking up the party? Were you in Ottawa at the time? Yes, I was. I was in a hotel and watching it all live. So, um, you know, the whole time we were there, I'm not a criminal lawyer. I don't give crimi- like advice on criminal law. Uh, it was always abide by the law. And if you heard messaging from Tamara Leach or Chris Barber, that's all. That's all they ever said on social media. Respect the law. Abide by the law. And uh, that's all we saw for three weeks. Uh-huh. But you could feel the tension in the air escalating. And then there was a change in the rhetoric from even the Ottawa police. And then, of course, a change in the leadership of the police with the chief of police stepping down. Then the Emergencies Act was invoked on the Monday. And st- everything was the same. Nothing changed. Like, so what changed from the the day before Sunday to the day after. In fact, if you look at what happened the day before the Emergencies Act, the, you know, quote unquote leadership that was recognized, uh, Tamara and others, came to an agreement with the mayor to reduce um, impact on area residents because everyone acknowledged that's not what the point was. But they were escorted into the city and abandoned by the city of Ottawa. um, And they were just there. So nobody, it, it was just like everyone just in government and policing. Ah, oh, we don't know what to do about it. Like I said, unprecedented. Like, ah, yeah. nobody was dealing with it effectively. And again, nobody had a dialogue. So they were still using the same playbook from two years, three years, maybe more now, if you look back at what's been going on. Nobody's communicating. So finally, the city of Ottawa reached out and 
if you listen to the evidence of um, the city of Ottawa top bureaucrats that were involved, they said they, that the protesters were so reasonable and, you know, it was easy to come to an agreement with them. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what happened the day before the Emergencies Act was invoked. So then the Emergencies Act is invoked the next day and everyone on the ground is like, what are, like, we're not disrespecting the police. Nothing has changed. Uh and it was just the same old, same old for three days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on Thursday, I'm pretty yeah, it was Thursday, I'm sure. Uh, Chris Barber is arrested, and Tamara Leach is arrested. Mm-hmm. Again, nothing, nothing in Ottawa changed. Yeah. It was the same old, same old. And then it all started, I believe, the next day. And then the riot police comes out, and then it's the same police officers that are giving high fives and being served coffee or being given roses on Valentine's day mm-hmm. um, and being told, thank you for your service. We're not here, you know, to cause trouble. We just want to talk to our elected officials. And then everything just, you know, it was a yeah. night and day difference. Yeah, for sure. It is, you know, I do have, sympathy for these police officers um and i think a lot of people do it, it but it is funny when def- you know the defense of them is always well they're just doing their job but at the end of the day that is their job they their their job is to enforce the will of the state and um you know the fact that they weren't busting heads before they broke up the protest is a testament to their, you know, who they actually might be. But once the hammer came down, they were doing, doing their job, doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. Yeah. I, I do think that they do have an oath to abide by the law, of course. And um, there is of course the question of whether or not that was a reasonable, um, use of the emergencies act and that was what the whole inquiry was about mm-hmm. yeah so let's let's look at that I don't, yeah oh sorry if there's more you have to say oh, on that go, go ahead, ahead. No, no go ahead um wh- well first of all so how what brought about the this public inquiry into the emergencies act i mean uh, like how how did that start so um the Emergencies Act's predecessor was the War Measures Act, and it was used three times in Canadian history. And I think it was in the 80s, there was um, a debate in Parliament to change it, to upgrade it. Uh, and they changed the name uh, from the War Measures Act to the Emergencies Act. But another big part of the changes to the law was that they wanted to include an inquiry as part of the act because um, they wanted the public to be to know why it was that they invoked the emergencies. Like this is a huge, very the, this is the most uh, like biggest hammer this the state has to impose on its citizens. So there was a huge debate in Parliament about having it more accountable and transparent for Canadians to know why exactly the government would be using this. Tool on its own citizens. Mm-hmm. So 
an inquiry became part of the Emergencies Act, and that as soon as the Emergencies Act was invoked on February 14th of this year, it was known to those, you know, to lawyers and and anyone that knew about the Emergencies Act that there would be an inquiry because it's mandatory under the law. So it's not like Justin Trudeau said, oh, I think this would be a good idea. Not at all. It's mandatory under the law. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they they knew what they were getting into when they when they invoked the Emergencies Act. Then that that's interesting. I actually didn't know that. So so then, uh, well, let's let's get right into it. I mean the the I didn't follow the whole thing. I mean the and it's still on, it's still ongoing. Is that no? I didn't. The only part I watched was uh, was you uh, talking to Justin Trudeau, and the only reason I watched that is because you're friends with my wife, and I thought it was interesting. Yeah, no, it was. It would have been very hard for any Canadian to watch, but I do encourage people. You know, there's a lot of good clips floating around social media and things of um, some really great parts in the testimony from people. And it's all still available online with the Public Order Emergency um, Commission website. And I do encourage all your viewers and Canadians to, you know, just turn it on, listen to it in the background. There's also transcripts available. And the reason is, is we we need to keep our, the government accountable for what they've done. And I, I, I worry that if people don't tune in at all and don't, you know, pay attention to it, that this could get swept under the rug. And we certainly don't want that to happen. And there was quite a bit of really good evidence and testimony that came out. I always encourage uh, everyone to listen to uh, Superintendent Patrick Morris. He's with the Ontario Provincial Police. He's the top intelligence officer for all of Ontario. And I commend the OPP on their organization because they came in so credible, so professional, so on point. It was incredibly disappointing to see the contrast between the OPP and the RCMP. Mm. Canadians top, you know, Commissioner Lucky was there. And if you just look at her evidence compared to uh, Pat Morris or other people from the OPP that came and testified, they knew the answers. They were credible. They used evidence. And unfortunately, our top commissioner, top police officer in Canada wasn't able to provide much evidence and was very um, flimsy with her credibility in my opinion. Okay. But yeah. One one important thing with that huge introduction about Pat Morris is that um you know he there was a lot of intelligence that came from the OPP. That's what they do and it seems like nobody used their intelligence. They said right off the bat there's absolutely no way that these people are traveling from BC traveling 5 days some people to come for a weekend in Ottawa. Uh they have they're determined and they're we can they're not leaving over the weekend. And for some reason, nobody seemed to have read their intelligence report, which was the correct intelligence. And so that was a very important piece of evidence because Ottawa City Police and others suggested that they were the protesters were only coming for a weekend, and there's no evidence um, to support that at all. And under cross-examination from the government of Canada, uh, the government of Canada has been trying to paint this narrative that 
you know, maybe there weren't actual threats, but there was a potential for threats, potential. And it was so my review of the inquiries, you really see a lot of fiction over facts, feelings over reality. And a threat of violence is not violence, but they tried to push it. And when the OPP officer was responding, he actually said in response to the federal government lawyer, the lack of serious violence during the three weeks was shocking. It was that low. So like he was trying to be like, you can't even talk about threats of violence, lady, because there was the opposite of that. If you look at the Vancouver Stanley Cup riots, there was over 200 people charged in one evening. And for three weeks, it was double digits of charges. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't even a threat and she was really reaching for it. And he's like, where's, no, the evidence is quite the opposite. It's shocking how little violence there was. And so if people start to hear that, play that, repeat it, this is what Canada needs to hear too. And this is why, like, I I don't want it swept under the rug and I encourage everyone to look. There was a lot of other good information. Uh, anytime you even look at Google Brendan Miller in the transcript or, or like uh, search it and his cross-examinations were always so on point, uh, getting straight to the issue, and lots of good evidence came out of it. Now, you work for the Justice Center uh, for Constitutional Freedoms, is that correct? So I was with the Justice Center at the time, and now I am not at this moment. Oh, okay, okay. Um, Now, was every, like, I'm, just trying to get a feel for what was happening there was were all of the what would you call it the opposing the lawyers opposing the government were all of them from the justice center no okay so um how it worked with the inquiry and people that were there is in june or whenever um the inquiry made itself known um they there was a call out by the commission to say anybody that wants to participate needs to make a submission and say why they should have standing. And then there's a decision on the website that granted people standing and those that applied that didn't, there's an explanation for why. So there were, I think, at least four civil liberties groups. So um, that uh, there was four of those type of groups. The Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms itself had standing. Um, I was there uh, together with Keith Wilson, Brendan Miller, and Bathsheba Vandenberg um, on behalf of the Freedom Convoy and Trucker, some of the protesters themselves. Um, So that was a separate group. So there were a few. Um, There was also the city of Ottawa, for example, Ottawa Police. There was the Government of Canada. Um, Ottawa, uh, sorry, the OPP. um, And... About 20 other groups had standing. So they all had an opportunity to give evidence. Um, They had their witnesses up and they had an ability to cross-examine others. Okay, okay. Um, Here's something I, I forgot to ask you before. So when the protest was going on, how many businesses in Ottawa were actually allowed to be open at the time? Like how many of those businesses that might have been impacted by 
the the trucks being parked there or the horns honking how how many like were there not still lockdowns in place as far as restaurants and things like that were concerned no so they had just reopened things uh, in Ottawa like it was post lockdown because things were clearing up so it doesn't at all make sense why the federal government then imposed a vaccine mandate on truckers who travel by themselves right. in a box okay. who were from other countries. So yeah, everything was kind of a little bit reopening. There might have been I think there was a mask mandate and that was part of it. That so my understanding, and I wasn't there straight from the beginning, and the evidence on this at the inquiry is wishy-washy. Like nobody actually presented any very credible stats or information. There was no business owner. There was the business association of uh, like certain areas that presented evidence. Uh, but even that was, there wasn't any good data. Like, but the, from what like the done, Chamber of Commerce wasn't a plaintiff no, in this? or uh... And I don't see why they would, to be honest, because um, that shouldn't ever be a reason why the Emergencies Act is invoked uh, a local business. This is Emergencies Act right. is for now. So uh, issue national security threat. So there was some discussion about the economic impact to Canada as a whole because of the, and I'm using quotations, border blockades, because there was evidence on that and how, like, I didn't know anything about the border, quote unquote, blockades, but there wasn't much to it. They didn't last long. There wasn't anything. It was super blown up in the media no surprise. But if you look at the evidence on the economic impact to Canada, it was insignificant. We had info from StatsCan on that. In respect, I'll just mention with the businesses is from everything I know, is the city of Ottawa suggested people uh, that businesses close their businesses. It was never mandated. And the federal government came to the rescue and delivered um, compensation to anyone that claimed it. And if you look online about it, they were they had like 30 millions set aside for it. And they hardly even got much of that compensation out to people. They went door knocking to give that compensation to businesses. When I had my business closed, there was nobody knocking on my door from the government to offer me money. But oh, the like the hoops that they went through to give people money in Ottawa businesses, just I, I've heard so many stories about that. And that was part of the inquiry. There, there was a discussion about that too. Oh, man. Yeah, well, yeah. they just love... They just love giving money away. Uh, maybe, maybe, only maybe. for certain causes. <laughs> yeah, only... know, if they're going to be the ones closing the business, no, you have to. I remember applying, trying to apply for one thing, and it took me like an hour to do it for $5. I'm like, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? Well, that's right. And uh, my Albertan separatist friends are going to love the fact that nobody was knocking on doors in Edmonton, but they were in the city of Ottawa, right? Because the protesters shut down the city according to their narrative. No, what happens when you have 10,000 extra people in a city? You can gain business. The businesses that stayed open said they made more money in two weeks than they did in two years. Yes. Like it just use your use common sense to yeah. to decide what happened there. If there's an influx of people at a festival, they're gonna get hungry. Yeah. They're gonna want to consume. I went to like to Shoppers Drug Mart one day, 
and the male like deodorant and washing section was just <laughs> so clearly they they were doing good business too and you hear stories about that too how well some businesses did like i said oh for sure yeah no well that that is great to hear um so the so then this the inquiry happens and you, by some stroke of luck, uh, get to have a conversation with our pal, Justin Trudeau. Now, I, I've said this before, a, a lot of people give him a hard time about being a uh, drama teacher, but I have to say his acting skill is on point. T- tell me a bit about your, you know, the ex- the experience of, of that. I mean, um, it seemed to me like he was lying through his teeth the whole time. Um, and and you seemed to cringe a bit at some of the things he said. Um, j- just tell me about how that conversation was for you. Well, first, I have to commend all the lawyers that went up and had 10 minutes to cross-examine or five minutes. That's not how you cross-examine people it's that's almost impossible to do and again I commend everyone that did it and I'm going to give props again to Brendan Miller because he did that every time and you know with all these witnesses on a super short timeline and he did so masterfully with so many witnesses and basically like it was case closed with Freeland the day before and the um he asked questions of like the prime minister's chief of staff or whoever it was, um, and just show, like on the law, he had done everything. And so there, the next day was the prime minister of Canada. And as I, how we started this conversation is um, our elected officials just didn't talk to us. There was no dialogue. Canadians lost hope. And for the first time with the Freedom Convoy and the protests, they felt they were being heard and they felt that hope again. And that's really what we wanted to have a discussion with the prime minister about. And I had been involved, like I said, with the protest from since February 2nd. Um, so, you know, my heart was in it. I know a lot of the players and I was involved so uh, intently. So I was super humbled and pleased to be able to be that voice for literally millions of Canadians that um, just, you know, felt they weren't heard. And not only that, that he, he called them terrible, terrible names. And it's funny that that clip got so well, it was his answer, because my question to uh, the prime minister was not whether or not you called people names, because we have evidence of that. There's He's on camera all the time saying it. But whether it's a role of a leader to unite citizens or divide them, and clearly, we know the answer. And again, that's where all of uh, the support came from the protest. When you're dividing people like this, you're you're going to create a wedge and you're going to have people that um, are not going to be happy. And then you keep reinforcing it and pushing that even more. People are, you know, going to take a stand against you. So I was, ha- you know, humbled, like I said, to be able to ask those questions of the prime minister. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I. I felt that, uh, you know, supporters of Justin Trudeau and the Liberals could potentially get behind Justin Trudeau. I thought his, you know, although I think it was a lot of BS, 
what he was saying. I thought his performance was well, you know. Um, but Freeland uh, was an absolute embarrassment. I mean, she, the, the amount of times she, you know, tried to change this subject or skirt a question was, I mean, it was, it should be embarrassing for all Canadians, I think. Yeah, it was, it was probably the weirdest um, exchanges we heard at the inquiry for the first two hours when the commission was asking lawyers and she was talking about electric vehicle batteries and the war in Ukraine. I was like, am I at the right commission? What are, what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Just uh, so weird. Yeah, it was completely, completely bizarre. Um so now the inquiry is still going on. Um, and sorry, I forget the gentleman's name who is the commissioner. Rulo. What is it? Rulo. Rulo. Rulo, yes. So now he's still, at this point, still taking evidence and statements from different people, different authorities and whatnot, or we'd like to think that he is. Um, no, no. So I'll just explain it a little bit. So... When we got to Ottawa, I can't even remember, early October, I think it was, the six weeks was evidence. So there were people uh, being sworn to give evidence, and it it started with, like, the city of Ottawa people, uh, police, then protesters, then came the federal government. So for six weeks, we heard evidence, and then that ended with the prime minister. So no more evidence should be Uh, put forward to the commissioner. The following week was still online and it's still available on the commission's website and you can view it and read it. We're round table discussions with academics and former directors and different professionals. And I, again, I encourage people to look at that because there were discussions about um, what the definition of national security threat is, uh, the right to protest, um, police actions, and things like that. And these people were having a discussion with the commissioner and, um, you know, talking about what should change and what happened. And it's important to hear what these people have to say, because these are the people in the ear of the commissioner, in the ear of government, telling them what um, they believe should happen. And some people, you know, really interesting. And then some people were a bit concerning because it seemed like they hadn't heard any of the evidence that was presented at the inquiry. And they were still using the mainstream media talking points and and the government talking points from before. So it's important to keep an eye on that. After that, we had submissions, written submissions due. So all the parties that were involved had an opportunity to write to the commission, um, everything based on the evidence and that policy week, and then make their own suggestions of uh, about um, whether or not the government was justified in invoking the Emergencies Act and what should what we should see moving forward. Here, there, like where there were problems and where we should fix them, and all those submissions are also on the website. So now the commission has all of this stuff that was gathered and it's <clears throat> sitting down. Now, I believe reviewing it all, hopefully, fingers crossed, and then coming up with a report. One thing that's a bit concerning that we recognized and uh, is in our submission is that 
it's the this report from the commission is meant to be public february 20th because it's meant to be open uh only for a year since the emergencies act was uh revoked but in this um order that the federal government made a separate order they've asked the commission to provide the report to them to the cabinet a couple weeks in advance so they get you know a preview secret copy of the report which we don't think is right and so we've put that in our submission saying this is not how this is supposed to be if this inquiry is about accountability and transparency by our federal government there should be no secret review and uh report that goes to the federal government before the Canadian public season well absolutely and you know the conspiracy theorists are going to have a field day with that right yep yeah wow. it does not help at all yeah that is that is something wow um you know i i try to avoid being too cynical uh but it's hard in canada these days part of this inquiry for me it seemed like it was all for show it seemed like uh you know the federal government is trying to showcase that there is these checks and balances and levels of accountability but at the end of the day it's it's hard for me to believe that anything positive is going to come out of this but i'd like you to convince me otherwise like what best case scenario what happens um once this commission finds that invoking the emergencies act was unjustified which it obviously was um what what's the best case scenario like what happens i, I doubt any of these politicians are going to prison but are is there is there hope for the future that something like this doesn't happen again well i think and this is why i'm encouraging everyone to look at these things and we have to keep uh, the, the commission's website and talking about this and keeping it in the public eye because that's the only way we're going to keep our government to account and um whatever the commission says if if you look at the evidence and they say which anything is possible these days that it was justified mm-hmm. we have to demand answers uh based on what and you look at the evidence if they say it wasn't justified but they did the best they can is that good enough for canada or do we start like i know it sounds a bit boring but i think we need to start demanding from our mps more answers they've had a pretty good ride for the last while you know again apathetic and sympathetic canadians oh they're doing the best that they can but really is that is that good enough for us you know if we're starting to get so cynical what what is the other option like we have to start having that demanding a dialogue with our mps and i don't know how many people are writing letters to their mps or calling their mps maybe that's the way to start this is, is having round tables like i said i i assumed naively i assumed that my count like municipal councilor would do a like a community town hall on zoom and and inform us what was going on with the lockdown mm-hmm. nothing yeah why can't we get back to that 
we have technology that, you know, you, you don't even have to rent out a community hall. That's great. But you could just be like, I want, I would like to have a Zoom call with you. I'm inviting 10 of my, you know, friends that are worried about this or whatever. And let's start having demanding a discussion. That really was what the protest was about, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and rather than, you know, let, there's no need to go back to Ottawa to do it. But we all have uh, um, access to our MPs, uh, emails and phones. And I think we need to start taking it up. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um but again, what what is what potentially happens when the this commission finds when the findings of this commission is that the invocation of the emergencies act was unjustified, what happens then? Nothing unless we make it happen. So Okay. Um and and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it cynically. It this report is just meant to be a report and provide recommendations for policy changes. And he said that from the first day. This is not something I went in naively to. I did go in believing and hoping that it was unbiased, but it doesn't have teeth the way, you know, nobody's going to jail because of this, because it wasn't a criminal court. But what we there was so much information that came out so much evidence and like i said it was fact over uh feelings and what we really saw clearly is unfortunately and i've used this word a lot was the incompetence of our governments on many level and police authorities like they didn't even look at the intelligence reports that were there like this is just pure incompetence. So as Canadians, I think we have to demand more. The inquiry provided the evidence. It kind of shone shone a light on a lot of the problems. And if we just, you know, close our eyes and say, well, the Commissioner Rulo, that's his job and he's going to fix Canada. Of course not. We We shouldn't believe it naively like that. We have so much good information that we could use and be like, um, the city of Ottawa, Ottawa police, what did you do to these people? You escorted them into the city of Ottawa. That was your fault. You didn't give them or the city of Ottawa didn't give them a place that they were able to protest. That's your fault mm-hmm. that this happened. Stop blaming everyone else. And that's what it was. It was a blame game. So I look forward to the report 100%. But I think it's kind of just the beginning, honestly. I don't think it's an end. And I don't think as Canadians, we should think that that's the end. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I sure hope, I sure hope you're right. Um, well, I guess, first of all, is there any, is there anything we, is there anything that we have not touched on throughout the whole story and, and the inquiry that you'd like to comment on? Um, good question. There was so much that happened, um, throughout the inquiry. Um, Freeland, you mentioned, well, this is actually a very important thing. So for the first five weeks, it was, you know, super obvious. There was absolutely no way that the Emergencies Act was justified because uh, CSIS, from all the evidence we had, didn't have any evidence to show that there was a national security threat. Uh, And this is something I think all Canadians need to know. And at some point, uh, they should. We should be making a big deal about this right now anyway. 
is that the government got legal advice that the definition of national security threat is um, not modern enough and that it needed to expand the definition of the Emergencies Act. But the government of Canada didn't provide that legal advice to Canada. So I think as Canadians, we should demand the federal government, the inquiry to provide that opinion. Because as Canadians, we should know why it is that they believe there was a national security threat, because that just came up in the last week of the inquiry. So if you're just changing the rules and the law at your whim to suit what you need it to sound like, and there's some great articles about this if you Google um, online, even I think like some mainstream media pick this up as well. Um, This is another thing that, you know, Canadians should be demanding more. And a lot of Canadians don't understand that Um, the reason they think it made sense to invoke the Emergencies Act is they just changed the definition they said it wasn't good enough Um, but that's not how it works if you need change the definition guess what you're the people in charge so you go to parliament you debate it you change the law that's how you don't just at your whim change it Mm -hmm. yeah well it you know expanding the definition of a national security threat to include, you know, Canadian citizens who are protesting. Peacefully and lawfully. That's yeah. the important part. Yeah, peacefully. So since yeah. this was like, we're not going invest- to surveil Canadians that are being peaceful and lawful. Mm-hmm. And that's why they said there was never a national security threat, because under their definition, but the federal government and its legal advice is suggesting that it needs to be expanded. Which so they're just going to start surveilling legal and peaceful Canadians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Crazy. I mean, it could. You know. It. But it's a slippery slope. Is is the is the worst of it? Like, I mean, if it, it sets a precedent that that could, in the future, really, really, cause a lot of damage to average. Canadians. I mean that that they're that the government has that type of authority. Yeah. Well, and you know that's they tried to make it out to show and that was part of what Freeland was saying is that because of the protest investors were uncomfortable in investing in Canada. Again, as it Uh, Where they were uncomfortable was when the federal government, without any authority, and this came out, froze people's bank accounts. Uh, What kind of an investor would put their money in a country where uh, without a lawful court order, their account is being frozen? Uh, And people were withdrawing money like crazy. uh, It It wasn't because there were people mad at their government that... investors yeah yeah absolutely yeah for sure um their their logic seems completely backwards i some of this stuff i hadn't thought about before i really appreciate talking to you about it so you're not with the justice center anymore are you well just tell us what what you are doing I, i you're still practicing law but it is where where where's the direction you're headed 
we'll see what opportunities come up. It's Christmas, so we're uh. going to see what the next steps are. But as you see, I'm still, you know, doing this. I want to, I want to make sure the inquiry stays in the public eye as much as possible. I'm hoping to inform people, Canadians, even people outside of Canada, you know, what went on mm-hmm. in Canada then, because we had the eye of the world on us. And it's important to, you know, I'm all about holding the government to account. You want to make a decision? Great. Um, like, that's fine. And I think that one thing, it's just unfortunate with public uh, or elected officials right now is that they just, you know, they're not taking a stand anymore. They're so, they look, instead of just taking a stand, sticking to it, saying that's what we thought was the best thing at the time. Looking back, you know, maybe we maybe we overstepped, maybe this, but it there's it seems that we have too many spineless po- political um elected officials at the moment. And wow. that's, you know, what I I see the biggest problem yeah. right now. Yeah. Well, spineless is a as good a adjective as any to describe them. Do you think that a conservative government would have done things differently? I don't know. And I don't know if you mean provincially or federally. And Well, provincially, obviously. We have a conservative government. Like there's a a in Alberta and in Ontario. I mean, we had we had conservative governments that were huge disappointments through the uh, lockdowns. I'm not personally convinced that a conservative government in Ottawa would have been any better than what Justin Trudeau and his cronies have done. So, I said it already, and I think it does. Honestly, I don't think it matters as much about what political stripe. If you don't have a backbone, like I said, if you're spineless, it doesn't matter what color you're wearing. And I think that's the problem. Like, take, like we saw it at the election, which reelected Justin Trudeau is we had a conservative, uh, and leader that changed his tune a hundred percent. Same with Kenny. And I don't think it has anything to do with liberal, conservative, and because I, I don't want to lose hope on it all, at all. I think we just need stronger leaders. Um, we've been apathetic. I'm going back to that again. We've, we're, that's what Canada has been like. And I think we need to take on a little bit stronger positions and not be scared away. Being in politics is not easy. And, and I commend people for doing it, for sure. But if you're going to take on a public role like that, you have to be able to injure what's coming at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. Uh, Eva, thank you so much for this. This was a, an excellent conversation and very insightful. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Eva Chipiuk. You can follow her on Twitter at F-O-R-E-V-A-E-V-A-7-9. And if you like the Darcy Drew podcast, subscribe on Substack. <laughs>